I think my first day in the office, PJ asked if I'd preach here for a men's Bible study as he was going to be gone, and so happy to, to sign up for that. And it's been a joy to study Revelation chapter 3 and kind of jump into the middle of this awesome study that, that you've had this summer. And I get to look at the Church of Philadelphia with you, which has been neat for me. So hopefully there are some good and helpful things for all of us here this morning in this awesome text. And I, I didn't have the benefit of sitting in each session to kind of be with you throughout this entire study, but I did go back and read these seven letters and listen to some of the sermons, and it's striking that there are letters that contain some words of encouragement followed by rebuke. And then the last church next week gets a scathing review and just a, a sort of condemnation. And it's alarming to read these seven letters. And Philadelphia stands out because Philadelphia is encouraged, commended. And I don't know about you, but I read... I read these letters and I read that Philadelphia gets a, a good review and I just want to know, what is it that characterized the church in Philadelphia? What, what is it that they were doing? What is it that they were not doing? What was going on here that caused them to get such a review from the Lord? So I am already just captivated by this text. I have to know, what is it that we can emulate here at Compass Bible Church in our individual lives here in the 21st century, so that we too might receive a commendation from the Lord. The thing that stands out about the church in Philadelphia is that they were faithful. They were the faithful church. The challenging thing about faithfulness is it's not just something you can do once and get credit for. You, you can do a one-time act of kindness and maybe be called a kind person, you could do a one-time act of generosity. You could do a one-time act of love. There's certain things that you might be able to do a one-time act of and, you know, be, be credited. But faithfulness, built into the concept of faithfulness, is the element of time. Faithfulness requires this longevity. And the church in Philadelphia had this virtue of faithfulness that stood the test of time, that, that had an endurance element to it. So they were faithful to the end. And so what I want to do is look in our Bibles in Revelation 3, 7 through 13 to learn here what these characteristics of remaining faithful to the end look like so that we too can, can follow. So let's look in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. It says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. 
I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which, come down, which comes down from my God out of heaven and, out of my, or, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here we have the church of Philadelphia to remain faithful to the end. This church, as we read this text, it, it tips us off to a couple things and then history confirms a couple other things that this church was a small church probably and an insignificant entity within the broader community of Philadelphia. And we get the sense that the Jews who are spoken of here in verse 9 had a bigger, longer standing historical presence and had maybe came across as they had some sort of an edge on the Christians in Philadelphia. And it could be that the persecution through which the Philadelphians remained faithful came from these Jews who accused the Philadelphian Christians for getting it wrong and wanted to sort of beat up on this smaller, insignificant community there in Philadelphia. And so Jesus writes, and one of the first things that he does here, just in verse 7 and then verse 8, is he gives a shot in the arm to this small, insignificant group of people, assuring them that others may claim to have sort of power and authority over them, or others may even claim to have access to God that, you know, that they're not going to grant to the Christians in Philadelphia. And Jesus comes in and he says, I'm the holy one. I'm, I'm God. I'm the true one, the genuine, real um, Messiah, access to God the Father. This is in me. And by the way, the one who holds the keys of David, and the one who holds the keys of David, it says, further description, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens. Christ is the one who has the power, the access to let people come in and out of or into God's kingdom, not the Jewish organization or any other power in Philadelphia, but Christ himself, and he addresses the Philadelphians, and he says, I've got the keys, and you're my faithful church. And so there's a, an assurance, I think, that ought to come over these Philadelphians when they read this, that their allegiance needs to be with Christ, needs to, be, needs to remain with Christ, and that's exactly the right place for it to be. And so the first key for us this morning, if we want to remain faithful to the end like the Philadelphians, I think the first thing we can learn is to keep our allegiance with Christ. That's point number one. Keep our allegiance with Christ. He says, I hold the keys. No one else holds the keys. Keep your allegiance with me and you'll have access to my kingdom. And I think that's what the keys to the kingdom means or the keys of David means. In fact, I think this is a reference back to Isaiah chapter 22. If you want to turn there real quick, in Isaiah 22, you have a guy named Eliakim in the house of David, and this guy Eliakim is given 
the key to the house of David. And the same words that we find in Revelation are spoken here in Isaiah 22, verse 22. It says, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. So same concept. And then it says, he shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. And this house of David, in this case, refers to, you know, all the storehouse of treasure that David has, the royal treasury. And it goes on throughout the Old Testament and I think here in Revelation to refer to more than the physical house of David, but to actually the treasury of God, the the house of God, the kingdom of God. And so like Eliakim, who had the physical key in the Old Testament, Jesus comes in and he says, I have, it's a non-physical key to grant access into the storehouse of God, the kingdom of God. And so Jesus assures the, the Philadelphians that if their allegiance remains with him, then no one can take away their entrance into the kingdom. And he sets before them an open door. Look at verse 8 of Revelation 3. I know your works before, behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And so I, I think he continues the metaphor there of having the key to then open the door which no one can shut. And the Jews in Philadelphia may have claimed to shut the Christians out. You don't have access to God. You're believing in the Messiah. You, you've got it all wrong. If you want to get into the kingdom, there's a, there's a different way. And Jesus trumps their word, their persecution, with the confidence that entrance into the kingdom is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And no one can shut that door. People can try to shut that door People can claim that they've excluded you. They, the Christians could be excluded from the synagogue all day long. The door to the synagogue entrance could be shut and locked in their face. But the door to the kingdom was wide open for those who kept the word of Christ. That's what's going on here. And the Philadelphians are encouraged by their allegiance to Christ to continue their allegiance to Christ. And verse 9 goes on to make a massive reversal of expectations, Old Testament expectations. It says, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, they have been referred to before, as people who claim to be Jews, but are not. They lie. I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So the Jews who claimed to be the children of God here in Philadelphia, claimed to have access to the kingdom, claimed to maybe exclude others from the kingdom, are going to be the very ones who bow at the feet of the Gentiles and realize that Christ has loved them. In Isaiah 60, and I think Isaiah 45, there is a prediction that... Gentile, that pagans will come and bow at the feet of God's people, the Jews. And there's this expectation that that's going to happen in the future. 
And Jesus, in a shocking turn of expectation, says that the people of God, in this case, are the Gentiles who've put their trust in Christ. And here in verse 9, there's going to be people who claim to be children of God, Jews who claim to be Jews but are not, they're going to come and bow at the feet of the Gentiles. Major shift in expectation. And we've been reading it in our DBR. We're going through the book of Acts and we read it over and over again. The, the gospel is preached to uh, Jews and Gentiles and the Jews reject the message and the Gentiles believe the message and the church is being grown by these Gentiles who become the people of God. And so what we have here is a dramatic turn of expectations and a reminder that our allegiance needs to remain with Christ. Through all of this, the Philadelphians did not deny his name. At the end of verse 8, I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. So there was some sort of opposition, some sort of temptation to deny his name, some sort of persecution, and they maintained allegiance through the opposition. And so I think for us today, we need to remember that key to remaining faithful is to fix our allegiance on Christ and um, keep our allegiance on Christ through challenges and persecutions as they present themselves to us. There's another key though as we continue on and it's in the middle of verse eight. It says, I know that you've, you have but little power and you've kept my word. The Philadelphian church was probably not the only one that was ganged up on. We know that to be true. So what makes them stand out? They probably weren't the only church to have their allegiance fixed on Christ either. The key difference maker that we find here in this section of scripture is that the Philadelphians kept his word. They kept his word. It's so simple. I just wonder if we had the... We had the pastor of the church of Philadelphia come and preach at our men's conference to, you know, preach a series on faithfulness. What would we expect him to cover if we were to anticipate what would be the things that he would cover in the different sessions? And what we get from this text here is a simple, one simple thing, keeping the word of Christ. I was surprised as I studied this passage at the, at the simplicity. It's not rocket science. Keep his word. This was the difference maker. Yet we tend to make the Christian life rocket science and we might tend to make Christian faithfulness rocket science too. It's just can be so overwhelmingly complicated in our minds about all the responsibilities we have as Christian men in the church and in the home and in the community and the, in the workplace and the list goes on of things that we're supposed to be doing at any given moment and, and memorizing and meditating and applying and sharing the gospel and, and 
there's a refreshing simplicity to the words here in the church to, Revel, um, to the church to Philadelphia. Just keep his word. And so we'll put it this way for point number two. Make obedience your daily goal. Make obedience your daily goal. If you want to learn a new language, you can't just go to bed one night and listen to a, you know audio track and wake up in the morning and know the language. There's a daily process of learning and a, a pattern that has to happen in order for you to gradually, consistently get a new set of words and concepts into your head. As much as we'd love to download faithfulness and be faithful men um, and keep you know, all of God's word today, there's a natural process that involves daily obedience. In fact, I think we can, we can all agree that the future comes at us in one day increments. The future comes one day at a time and God's unfolding plan is presented to us one day at a time. And so our responsibility today is to be faithful. Our responsibility today is to obey God's word. And if we make obedience a daily goal, then we can become the kind of church and the kinds of people that were characteristic here in Philadelphia. So what does keeping Christ's word involve? I have to know the answer to that question. If, if this is the difference maker, if this is the key, what, what does it mean? Keep his word. Obviously, in order to keep his word, we have to know it. And we know from reading our Bibles that knowing the Bible isn't enough. There has to be an application of the Bible. It has to go from our heads into our hearts. There has to be an internalization that happens uh, and an application then that follows. But I can't help but think that there were Jews in the city of Philadelphia who knew their Bibles inside and out and who were striving every day to apply, to internalize and apply what they read. They had a whole system for applying the Bible. It was a major effort to put to practice what they believed the Bible to say. So <laughs> understanding and applying God's word is essential, but there has to be more than understanding and applying God's word because it could be that we've understood it wrong and we've applied it wrong. And so there, I think essential to keeping God's word is a willingness to be corrected by it. If we read our Bibles and apply it, that's great. But what do we do when we're confronted with conviction and what apparently is mis we've misunderstood the text or we've misapplied the text? If we don't have a willingness, a humility to change the way we think and change the way we act based on God's word, then we don't have 
the key that, to faithfulness, to receiving the commendation of the Lord. I have to think that there were Jews who thought they had understood the Bible correctly and were applying the Bible when they put Christ on the cross. You have to have a willingness to be corrected by the pages of scripture, by the words of Christ. If you want to have the sort of faithful keeping of God's word that the Philadelphians had. And then I think too, they also had not only a humility and a teachability, but a resolve to obey it no matter what. They had decided beforehand, all right, this is, you know, I'm going to continue my understanding of Christ's words here, and I'm going to change my thinking and my actions based on what I read and learn. And that's going to get me in trouble on occasion, and I'm okay with that. And the longevity, the time aspect of faithfulness comes out here in this concept because these Christians resolved to obey no matter what. And often it did get them in trouble. We read that in Acts 2. We've been reading about the, the hostility that comes on the apostles who decided beforehand that they were going to be faithful to the Lord no matter what. And one more, at, at least, observation, and it could be more that are discussed in groups, just keys to keeping the word of God. We need a supernatural work of God on our behalf, don't we? As fallen, sinful human beings, we need God to open our eyes to read and understand the pages of scripture. We need the spirit to illuminate the text to us. We don't arrive at a correct understanding of scripture by being smart and figuring it all out through our own brilliance, but through a dependence on the Lord and, a, and asking God to show us what his word says. And this gets at one of the, an, another key, I think, to the church here in Philadelphia it becomes evident that they were able to keep Christ's word not because of their strength, not because of their size and number, but in spite of their weakness. Look at verse eight. I know that you have but little power and yet you've kept my word. I don't think this is a rebuke that they had a small amount of power I think this is a major dose of encouragement again. And the reality of things in Philadelphia was they were a, a small presence in the community, small in size, small maybe in, in their uh, influence in the community. So they weren't big and strong and large in number, yet they were faithful and so I think it's important for us to learn and remember that our weakness does not prevent us from being faithful. In fact, I'd like to argue that our weakness is essential to us being faithful. I think it's key in helping us to be truly faithful. We come to passages of scripture like this one in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul says, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. 
He says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. God loves to demonstrate his power through human weakness. And the Philadelphian church, they had the weakness going on. And that put them in a position to be useful to the Lord, and it did not disqualify them from being faithful to the Lord. In fact, I think it's essential because in First Corinthians, or no, Second Corinthians chapter 12, Second Corinthians chapter 12, Paul testifies of his weakness. Familiar passage, he says in verse nine, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you after he had his thorn in the flesh. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul understood that his physical weakness was essential for his spiritual strength because it was a constant reminder to him that he couldn't do it on his own. He couldn't um, figure it out on his own. He was driven to a state of dependence on Christ and his strength. And so he's able to be content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, all these things because he believes that when he's physically weak, that puts him in a position where he is spiritually strong because it forces dependence. And it seems like that was what was going on at the church in Philadelphia. They knew they were weak. That forced them not to depend on their own strength, their own presence in the community, their own wisdom and wherewithal, but rather it drove them to their knees and they were strong in the Lord for it. And I wonder if this is why, (laughs) this concept is why Jesus spends more time in Revelation 3 in our text talking about his character, his accomplishments, than he does the Philadelphians and their accomplishments. That was one of the questions. I don't know if you saw that on the worksheet ahead of time, but I was just struck as I was studying this passage that it just, it seems like I want to know, man, what it, what's going on in Philadelphia that, that um, they got the commendation from the Lord. And as I read through it, there isn't a whole lot about Philadelphia. There's a whole lot about Christ, his character, his accomplishments, his promises. And there's a couple key things about the Philadelphians. I don't know what percentage is the words of, you know, about Christ and what percentage is about Philadelphia, but it seems like more than 50% is about Christ and his accomplishments. And so was it more about Christ and his strength and his accomplishments than the Philadelphians? Was this key to their acknowledgement um, or what was the acknowledgement of their weakness their physical weakness, their small presence, an important aspect of their being faithful and strong in the Lord. 
And in saying that, we have to be careful not to downplay their responsibility. Certainly, they had responsibility as physically weak and small in size, a small in size church to endure and be faithful and work hard to share the gospel and represent Christ and, and serve the Lord in all of these things. It doesn't mean they got to sit back and be passive recipients of uh, Christ's work through them. They were active recipients in this process. And that's why in verse 10, part of their commendation, I think, is you have kept my word, same phrase, about patient endurance. They kept his word about patient endurance. So they endured and didn't deny, persevered in their weakness. And again, I got to this part of the text and I was asking more questions. What is the Christ's word of patient endurance? There is no specific reference to what word is being talked about. And so I started thinking through, was this a, a word that, that, you know, the teaching, a set of teachings that Jesus had laid out in the gospels that he's referring to here? Remember that time when I taught about, well, they wouldn't have remembered, but he's, he's saying, you know, like th there's that time when I taught about endurance and, you know, faithful endurance, and, and that's been preserved in the pages of the gospel. That's the teaching that I'm talking about. You kept that word and you're, you're commended for that. Some, a lot of the commentators, because there isn't a whole lot of sections in the Gospels on that, a lot of the commentators say that this is a reference to the, the word of Christ's endurance is actually referring to his example. His example of enduring through suffering, and that's the word of his endurance. But it's the word, word that messes with me in that interpretation because he says, you have kept my word, logos, about patient endurance. And so it seems to be some sort of reference to something he taught. And there's, you know, the section in John 15 where he says, if the world hates you, then um, know that they hated me first and expect some persecution. And then I think in John, I mean, Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. They will persecute you in one town. And so, and then in, in the epistles, there's further instructions for Christians to, um, to persevere through trials and challenges. And um, anyway, it, at the end of the day, we understand that Jesus did demonstrate for us patient endurance in his death on the cross and everything leading up to that. And there are various passages throughout the New Testament that instruct us to, in a similar way, endure and be faithful through suffering and challenges. And the Philadelphians kept that word, that example, that teaching, and they endured through suffering. And it's probably safe to say that we don't experience as much um, persecution here in Orange County as they did there in Philadelphia. But we do experience some and every time we experience hostility and persecution, it's an opportunity as making obedience our daily goal. It's a daily opportunity to be faithful and to obey. And I can just even say, 
you know, I've lived in the Midwest for the last couple years, and the particular county that I lived in, West uh, Hamilton County, and just north of Indianapolis, and everyone claims to be a Christian there. My, my experience, I'd invite neighbors to church and, and talk to people, and all, in all encounters that I can remember, minus two, people said, oh yeah, I go to church, I'm a Christian, I've gone to church my whole life. And I, and I have it, here's my home church. It's, you know, on this, this and that street. And it's true. They grew up going to that church, that they consider that their home church. They, you know, may go there once a year or less, and that's okay for them, but that's their home church. They were born there, their parents went there, their grandparents went there, and they're Christians. And so the, the, that was a lot more so the culture out there where I used to live that everyone's a Christian. You're not given a hard time for believing the Bible. That's applauded and respectable. And so I've even noticed just a, a difference in living in this area. While we don't experience a ton of persecution, I think there are um, parts of the country where there's less persecution. And these are opportunities for us when we experience hostility and shaming for being Christians here by people that we work with and live with. These are opportunities for us to remain faithful and demonstrate our allegiance. And I want to take advantage of those opportunities as they come. The last section here is a quick section. It's not, there's a, a lot of theology built into it, but, and you can talk about these in your groups if you want, but uh, starting in the second half of verse 10, well, let me just read all of verse 10. It says, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, Christ then makes a promise I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. And it goes on, but our third and final element for remaining faithful is to stay motivated to follow Christ. That's point number three. Stay motivated to follow Christ. Jesus provides the Philadelphians with a, a couple motivations, promises, for them to continue to stay the course. And the first one is the second half of verse 10. Because they demonstrated faithfulness in one set of persecutions, Jesus says he will keep them from the ultimate test of persecution and uh, trial. And I think this is a reference to the great tribulation. It's a worldwide um, testing on, in, in the world. So he says, the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. This seems to be a reference to the great tribulation when it comes. And what Jesus says is, I will keep you from that pull you out of that. It seems to be a reference to the rapture that the faithful church will be raptured from the ultimate time of testing because they will have already demonstrated faithfulness before. And there are some that take this to believe, to mean that, you know, keeping them from the trial is actually preserving them through the trial but it seems that, and that works grammatically, but it seems that what he's saying here is a removal from, just in the word choice, 
that he uses. And that's an encouraging thing. If, he, if he's trying to encourage and motivate them to continue pressing on, he, he says, don't worry, you know, the, the great tribulation that, that some are fearing, I'm going to pull you out from that. Not you're going to endure and, and I'll help you die through that process. So this seems to be a reference to the pre-tribulational rapture. Um, and then another motivation is in verse 11, I'm coming soon, hold fast to what you have. Press on, keep going so that no one may seize your crown. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And here is, is just the metaphor for security and stability being placed in the kingdom. Nothing can change that. No one can take that away. That's a door that he can open and no one can shut. And then, similarly, he's gonna write on them the name his name, the name of the new Jerusalem, the new name, these are all references to a sure, fixed, guaranteed inheritance that is to come if they will stay the course. No one can change that. No one can take that away. So, we need to remain faithful to the end as the Philadelphians did and that doesn't mean we need to be physically strong and physically able. It, mean, it means we need to recognize um, our inabilities and our utter dependence on the Lord. And as dependent people who trust the Lord for strength, we need to live faithfully by daily keeping Christ's word to us. We read yesterday in our DBR, Psalm 20, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we, tr we trust in the name of the Lord our God. It's his strength, not ours, that will allow us to endure to the end if we keep his word and trust him. So let's pray. God, we're thankful for this text and we're thankful for the things that it teaches to us here at Compass in 2018. God, we know that we are challenged, our faithfulness is challenged by different forces around us. We're thankful for the example of the Philadelphians and the things that we can learn from them to be faithful and remain faithful. Help us to this end, God, for your glory and your honor. In Christ's name we pray, amen.